Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have to look into your word. We ask that you would help us not to take that for granted, but that you would make us into good students of your word, that we would study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, discerning the word of truth. Pray that you would give us insight and that you would give us understanding, that by your Holy Spirit you would grant us divine wisdom and grant us as well by your Spirit that we would desire and delight to walk pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me this morning as I present your word, that you would enable me to proclaim it in such a way as to give you and you alone glory and honor and praise. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. We are midway through a sermon, not because I planned it that way, but because this pastor was long spoken last week, so we're starting halfway through a sermon of which the title is A Change of Heart is Shown in a Change of Action. What we've been doing since early summer, actually, is we've been following the life of Joseph and looking at biblical principles from an Old Testament saint that apply to us today. So taking biblical principles from Joseph and saying, well, how does that suit? How does that work? How does that apply itself in our environment, in our lives? Because the reality is he was speaking, he was living in a completely different culture. He was living at a different time. He was under the rulership at that time of Egypt. There was a lot of differences. Remembering this is as well as long before the cross of Christ. So we, we look into that culture, we look into that time frame, and we say, all right, we can't take what Joseph said as absolute commands that this I must do today because there's a lot of things that have changed since then, particularly the cross of Jesus Christ. But we can look in the Old Testament, we can find principles that are clearly laid out. Yes, there are times where we can find commands that are clearly laid out. They apply to us right across the board. But it's not like we've been looking here recently in Joseph. Okay, he is in Egypt. The time of famine has come. He has, because of his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, he's been placed in charge of gathering and then for seven years and then after that distributing food. So it's not likely that we're going to be in a foreign country, raised up as a prince over the country, designated as responsible as the person in charge of all the grain for seven good years and seven bad years. So we can't take and say, well, this applies directly to me. But we can take and we can look at principles from his life. What he said, how he acted, what God did in him, what God was teaching him, and we could take those principles and we could apply them to ourselves. That's where we see that a change of heart is shown in a change of action. We're looking at the test that Joseph applied to his brothers, the trial or the test that he applied to his brothers and their response to it. And we're looking to see if they have a change in response, a change in attitude, a change in action than they did from 20, what would be 22 years earlier when Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. So this is 22 years from that date, give or take a little bit. And Joseph is putting the pressure to them. He hasn't revealed himself to them at this point yet. We read the last verse that we read last week. He reveals himself. He begins to reveal himself so that they know who he is. But prior to this, he hasn't revealed himself. He knows who they are. They have finally come down to Egypt. Their father Jacob has sent them down and said, go get grain. They've come once. They went home. They've got to come down a second time. To come down a second time, they have to bring Benjamin. Otherwise, Joseph says, I won't see your face. You won't be able to trade here. You're not going to be able to go back home with grain unless you bring your brother Benjamin down to me. And so they come down, and Joseph meets them. And we've just got to the point where he gives them grain. He sticks the silver cup 
that he owns in Benjamin's sack and he sends them back. And just shortly after they've left, we see that he sends his servant out and says, okay, servant, now chase them down and go to them and say, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you done this? And bring them back to me. So we're just at that point now. That gives a little bit of a context for where we are in the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 44, we're going to read quite a bit here uh, because it's very difficult to divide this in two, even though we tried to do that in points last week. So Genesis chapter 44, starting at verse 1 to 45 and verse 1. And he commanded the steward, this is Joseph, he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So we did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Go up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please, let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eye upon him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when they went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, 
when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. The two points that we looked at last week, the first is that God's design of your trials is specific. And I'll just recap that in case you weren't here. God's design of your trials is specific. Remembering that this is a principle. This does not mean that every time you face a trial, God has arranged it and is specific, okay, I'm, I'm working it perfectly for this purpose. But we know that God is sovereign in control, that he is all-knowing. And if Joseph is so able to make this test of his brothers specific, is not God more able? Joseph set up this scenario almost perfectly to cause the brothers to be confronted with their sin. Now, it wasn't the sin of stealing the cup because that wasn't actually a sin because that cup was planted there. It was the sin of betraying Joseph, of selling him into slavery, of throwing him into the pit 22 years earlier. He has designed this test, this trial, to cause them to think about that and to be convicted over that and to know their guilt over that. And then he takes it one step further. He gets that response where they're realizing their sin And then he sets up the scenario even further to test them. Are you going to do the same thing again? If given the opportunity, would you respond in the same way as you did then? Do you still have hearts that are full of evil? Are you still self-seeking and self-serving? Or have you had a change of heart? He wants to, to not just hear of a change of heart, although he does want that. He wants to see a change of heart. And so Joseph designs this test, this trial, very specifically. Now, we did look last week at what a cup of divination is. There is nowhere here that it says Joseph practiced divination. As a matter of fact, when you look at the second reference to that, Joseph says, don't you know that such a man as I can divine or can can use divination? When he says that, he doesn't have the cup, or at least he had not had the cup, when he discerned that they had the cup. Okay, He couldn't have had the cup because they had the cup, so he wasn't using the cup of divination as a cup of divination. This is a short way of saying, or a long way of saying, that he didn't necessarily use the cup for divination. But even that, as far as a prop goes, was perfect. Because it wouldn't have made any sense if it was just a regular cup, a regular silver cup used at Joseph's table. Why would they steal it? They had silver in their bags. and, And they even say that. Why? Would we bring back the extra silver that you placed in our sacks and then steal more from you? But Joseph, in incredible wisdom, uses something that had mystical or assumed mystical powers that would have set it apart. And and he says to them, knowing that they would understand that the Egyptians generally did practice divination and that there was great perceived power in these cups, why did you steal this cup? The The test is perfect. 
virtually perfect anyways. And so we can take a principle from that, and it is simply a principle, that if Joseph was able to, to set up such a perfect scenario to evoke a perfect response or perfectly evoke the response that he wanted, is not God more than able to test us and to try us? And are then not the trials that God causes or allows in our life specific to us? Absolutely. God's design of your trials is specific. They acknowledge their sin, not of stealing the cup, but of betraying Joseph, because this trial, this test, is specific. And we saw that they acknowledge that sin in the distinction between their guilt and the guilt of Benjamin. And we see that in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? This is the brother speaking, Judah probably. What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? They're taking it corporately. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Well, they, generally speaking, had not been at all involved in this. There wasn't actually sin in regards to the cup. But they're saying God has found out the iniquity of your servants. God has shown the sin that we bear. It's interesting. It's the exact same in the prior chapter. When they're given a test, speaking among themselves, not thinking that Joseph could understand them, they say, at that point it was 20 years earlier, look at the sin that we committed. 20 years ago we sold Joseph, we sold our brother. His blood is required on our hands. He cried out to us in anguish of soul. He pleaded with us, he says. That is the sin that is their besetting sin. It is weighing upon them. It has been weighing upon them for 22 years. And this scenario, this trial, has brought that to the surface. And there's a distinction made there between their sin and possibly the sin of Benjamin, if he had actually committed a sin. God has found out the iniquity of us and of your servant who had the cup. There is a distinction there. So Joseph used this specific test. God, at times, uses specific tests, specific trials. Now, I am not saying that Joseph's perfect setup of his brothers in this test is always the way that God does it. But if Joseph's test is virtually perfect and elicited the right response, isn't it more likely that God's test and trials for us are even more perfect, even more specific, even more intentionally designed? God has designed in our trials. So going forward, ask yourself as you face test and trials, what does God wish to accomplish in my life through this? What does God want me to learn through this? Is it possible to examine the trial and come to a conclusion why this is necessary, why this is healthy, why this is beneficial. What is God doing? And so respond to him according to his design in that trial. The second thing that I wanted you to see is that God's purpose in your trials is change. He does not just bring trials into our life for the fun of having trials in our life. Joseph didn't bring this test on his brothers just for the pure joy of seeing them squirm. Maybe there was a little bit of that. God doesn't do that. God has intent. God has purpose. And that is to accomplish change in them. We see their change of heart in their acceptance of blame, as we looked at in verse uh, 16. But also we see the change of attitude or the change of heart in verse 32. He says, your servant, Judah speaking again, became surety, a guarantee for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Judah accepts, at least in words, that he is accountable, 
that he bears responsibility. This is Joseph's intent to provoke change, to invoke change, to to have him respond in a different attitude than he had 22 years earlier there. 22 years earlier, the brothers had lied and practiced deceit and practiced evil. When they were given the opportunity to serve themselves or save their brother, they served themselves by rejecting their brother, by selling their brother, by betraying their brother. And Joseph is testing to see whether that heart has changed. And we see here that there is a change because now they're owning it. They're accepting it. And isn't that what God's purpose in our trials is? He does bring them with purpose. It isn't coincidental. It, whatever we're going through, is designed to draw us to God, to grow our faith, to convict us of sin. It is perfectly designed to bring change. God is not content with you the way you are today. He is working a change in you. He wants to mature you and to develop you. He wants you to be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. His trials have purpose. He wants to make you look like Jesus Christ. So now to the actual points that I want to share with you today. There's just two more. God's delight through your trials is obedience. God's delight through your trials is obedience. Joseph, in setting up this test for his brothers, was seeking action more than mere words. He was seeking action more than mere words. He has already heard them acknowledge their sin in the first test. That's in chapter 42, verse 21, where they say, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when, we, when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. And now Joseph has heard their words again. Words acknowledging their guilt. That goes back to verse 16. What shall we say? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. So Joseph has heard the words. But Joseph wants a change of action to prove the words. God's delight through your trials is not just a change of words, as important as that might be, but a change of action that proves the words. They here acknowledge clearly their guilt, but acknowledgement is not enough. No matter how vehemently they may state it, words themselves can be hollow, they can be meaningless and empty. Even if stated in genuineness and sincerity, words are often insufficient. We know that ourselves, right? If you're asked to believe something, what would you rather have? Words that state the truth or actions that display the truth? Generally, we want actions that display the truth because we know they truly believe it when they live it. Actions speak to us. They speak louder than words. Joseph sought the confirmation of his brother's words. Were they just here spinning a good yarn or would they actually act accordingly? Joseph pushed them on this one. He applied pressure. He was specific in it. Very specific in it. Before he would reveal who he was to his brothers, he wanted to be 100% certain that their hearts were right, that evil had been put aside, that true repentance had taken place. That is why he continues to apply pressure to them. He makes the scenario harder and harder to escape. Either they will be self-centered and abandon Benjamin, or they will act rightly and stand by their brother, even possibly to their own death. And in the end, Joseph's brothers do right. They act right. Judah particularly. Verse 33. He says, Now therefore, this is Judah speaking, 
Please let your servant, let Judah, remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. Judah has just sacrificed himself for the sake of his brother and of his father. And that's monumental here. That is exactly the opposite of what he had done 22 years earlier. It's the opposite. Then they had sacrificed Joseph for their selfish gain. And here they sacrificed themselves for the good of another. The change of heart has been proven by action, by a willingness. That would be quite the statement for Judah. Whatever you do, Joseph, or prince of Egypt at this time, he doesn't even know he's Joseph yet. Don't keep Benjamin. Keep me. I I will be your slave for the rest of my life if you will just send this lad home to be with his father. I have taken responsibility. I am accountable for him. If he does not return, his father is likely to die. And that will be on my head. So send him back and keep me. Let me be in his place. Let me stand in his place. Action, proving the words. That principle applies to us as well. God is at work through our tests and trials. He has specifically designed them for you and for me. He designed them to accomplish a change of heart. And his delight is when you both profess with your lips the truth and then when you take action upon it. You see that in regards to genuine repentance. Genuine repentance goes far beyond words. Genuine repentance is proven in right conduct. When we confess our sins and turn from them, there has to be an actual turning from them and turning to God. Certainly, we may fall, we may sleep, we probably will, but genuine repentance is that change of mind. It is beginning to see our sin as desperately sinful and hating it and seeing God as glorious and delighting to please him. When when John the Baptist came, he preached repentance. And what did he say that looked like? He called those who repented to bear works worthy of repentance. He said, repent, 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 and do works worthy of repentance. And he was very specific because they asked him, well, what are these works of repentance that we're supposed to do? In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, for everyone, he says, share what you have. For the tax collector, he says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. For the soldier, he says, act justly. Their repentance was proven by their actions. Their conduct proved their commitment in that repentance. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your words. No. In all your conduct. Action proves the words. We are to be holy as God is holy. Then conduct yourself in a manner worthy of his holiness. I don't know about yourself, but I tend to get very caught up in, I I get easily caught up in having a right belief system. And, And a right belief system is a very good thing. Don't think that's wrong. It's very good to have a right belief system. But a right belief system will demonstrate itself in right action. A right belief system will demonstrate itself in right action. And if there isn't the right action, then I question whether there's the right belief. It's to be shown in action. The book of James is perhaps the most clear about that, right? Faith without works, without action, is dead. It's non-existent. There's no such thing as genuine faith that does not act. It's impossible. Faith in God will produce good fruit. Faith results in right action. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and be filled, 
but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James chapter 2. Action is required. Action proves faith. Practical, rubber meets the road, blood, sweat, and tears, action. What good is it to say to someone who's hungry, as it says there, be blessed, be filled, be warm, and then do nothing? It's not just pointless, it's actually destructive when our action does not line up with our words. God allows or causes specific trials and tests to come our way. His purpose in those trials and tests is to change us, to reflect Jesus Christ. That reflection will be seen in obedience. God delights in our obedience. God's delight through your trial is obedience to him, faith in action. Fourthly, and lastly, God's reward for your trials is abundant. God's reward is abundant. I could just say that, I'll keep saying it. God's reward is abundant. Whatever the trial, whatever the test that you're going through right now, God's reward is abundant. It may be impossible to see. Paul calls it a slight and momentary affliction. It's with purpose, an eternal weight of glory. God's reward is abundant. Joseph's reward for his brothers is the revealing of himself to them. It was the making sense of everything that they had gone through. And praise God, that will happen one day. Whether it's on this earth or not, there's going to come a time when one of the rewards for obedience to God through these trials and tests is when he actually begins to make sense of it. When he, he reveals what he was accomplishing through it and how his glory was being radiated even through it. God will one day make sense of everything. Joseph here begins to make sense of this for his brothers. He reveals himself to them. It says here that Joseph could not restrain himself. They come to the point where they have passed that test, where Joseph has seen a change of heart, demonstrated a change of action. He knows that their heart is not full of evil as it once was, and he couldn't restrain himself any further. It says Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Can you imagine that moment? That would have been something to wrap your mind around. You mean 22 years ago we sold you into slavery? You mean this whole thing about Benjamin and the silver cup was, oh my goodness. You mean the last time we were, yeah, that was you, the same person. It would have taken a lot. And yet, can you imagine the, the beginning of the sense of, of wonder and awe? Now, we know at the end of this book that there's, there's some fear still. Even at the end of Jacob's life, after he passes away, the brothers, they put words in Jacob's mouth and they go to Joseph and they say, um, our father really wanted you to you know, not judge us too harshly, not, not to condemn your brothers now. And he says very, very clearly, you know what? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And so here you have a beginning of an inkling of understanding of that. And they would have looked at that and said, whoa, completely blown their mind. And yet, everything that, had, that they've worked through, everything that they've wrestled with, all of their fears and doubts and anxieties and struggles and all of their sin, it's, it's beginning to see direction, to see purpose, to see plan, to see sovereign plan behind it. That, that For them, it might have just been they were seeing Joseph's plan behind it. But we look back on that and we see sovereignty written all over it. That God is good and he knows what he's doing. 
that God is good and he knows what he's doing. We can see that looking back in the life of Joseph and his brothers and Benjamin and Jacob and this entire narrative that God is good and God knows what he's doing. Can't we see that in our own life as well? And as God begins to reveal just small portions of who he is, just as Joseph revealed himself to them, oh, God is good and he knows what he's doing. Even in this trial, in this test, in this struggle, God is good and he knows what he's doing. And it's for my good, it's not for my evil. This is what God is accomplishing. If Joseph could, could accomplish this in his brother's life, how much more so for the child of God? That moment when we realize that God is demonstrating his love to us, even in this trial. That moment when we begin to, to grasp and to sense and to know God's reward for obedience. And prayerfully that's happened multiple times and continues to happen. That you look back in some situation where you didn't understand why this was even there or what it was intended to do. And yet you obeyed God and you did what he called you to do. And at some point some glimmer of light comes through that. And you're like, my goodness, this is what God is doing. And we only now see that vaguely, just faintly. And God's reward is abundant. If in those moments we can see that God's hand is good and that he rewards right here and now, imagine what it's going to be like when we know him because we shall see him face to face. We shall be like him at his return. We begin to grasp the fullness of the reward of God for obedience, for those who follow him, for those who trust in him. God rewards faith with eternal life. God rewards faith with hope and peace and joy eternal. God grants life and life to the full both here and now and eternally. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God's reward is abundant. If his plan is to send Jesus Christ to die to save you from sin, and you turn to him, and you accept that grace through faith, and you begin to realize eternal life, you have a grasp, a beginning of a grasp of God's reward. If God sent his Son in that manner, how much more will he not also give us all things, all things in Jesus Christ? God delights in obedience. God rewards obedience. God rewards obedience, particularly through struggles and trials and tests. And that reward is abundant. And I'm not meaning to make this sound like a prosperity gospel. That is not my intent. I think the vast majority of the rewards that God will give to his children are eternal. They aren't necessarily here. And actually, if God is taking trials and struggles to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and that's working effectively, guess what he's going to do? He's going to continue to give us trials and struggles and tests. Why? Because he wants us to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ because that ultimately is our greatest good and is to his glory. But don't be distracted. God's reward is abundant, both here and eternally. If I could draw an analogy, Joseph's reward to his brothers upon their right action was revealing himself to them. Is not God's reward to those who obey him the revelation of himself? to us. We trust him and he makes himself known. We walk in obedience and he rewards us with his presence. We struggle and we fight against the flesh and he draws us near to us. He embraces us. He loves us. We weep and we sorrow through trials and tests and he comforts us 
personally and intimately. The greatest reward possible for the child of God who walks through the valley of the shadow of death is the sustaining presence of God. God's reward for your trials is truly abundant. So when the greatest test that Joseph's brothers would face, we see these principles for us. God's design of your trials is specific. God's purpose in your trials is change. God's delight through your trials is obedience. And God's reward for your obedience is abundance. God is doing a work in you. It is a good work. Good because it is of him and good because it is for our good. It really is, regardless of how we may look at it right now. Everything God does is for your good and his glory. His heart is set on you. His heart is favorable towards you. His plan is to create a masterpiece in you and out of you. He is good. His good work will transform our heart as we trust in him and from there transform our actions as we walk with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this window that we've had into Joseph and his brothers, but even more importantly, a window into who you are and what you are doing. We thank you for these clear examples of how you worked through people in the Old Testament. We thank you for the principles that we can derive from them. We thank you that these principles are not just random, that throughout the Word of God, what you have revealed of yourself is very clear. Hard to understand at times, but it's not unclear or lacking in revelation. We thank you that your revelation has been made. We thank you that God demonstrated. He did just speak, but he demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh. We thank you for the purpose and intent in that, even in the struggles and trials and suffering of Jesus Christ, that there was a God-ordained purpose. And so we can trust that in our God-ordained struggles and trials and tests, there is a God-ordained purpose, and we thank you for that. We thank you that your purpose is, is not random, but that it is actually purpose, and that it is to conform us, to make us look like Jesus Christ, which is the greatest thing possible. And we thank you for that lofty goal and ambition and desire that we would be like you. We pray that you would find us willing vessels, pliable and moldable in your hands, that we would not resist the hand of the potter as you fashion us. Cause us even in difficulties, in incredible difficulties, to realize that your hand, which refines us, is, is good and is still full of mercy and grace. We thank you that you do provide grace to sustain through both joyful times and difficult times. We thank you that there is, as well, an eternal reward for this. As your word says, it is a reward that is laid up for us in heaven. that doesn't fade away, doesn't tarnish, doesn't rust, doesn't grow old. And it is the riches of God in Christ Jesus. But also the reward of, of being able to see Christ face to face one day. And so we look forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes to take us home. We ask that between now and then you would find us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.